So Acts 17, verse 16. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him when he saw the city was given over to idols. Therefore he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and with the Gentile worshippers, and in the marketplace daily with those who happened to be there. Then certain Epicurean and Stoic philosophers encountered him, and some said, What does this babbler want to say? Others said, He seems to be a proclaimer of foreign gods, because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine is of which you speak, for you are bringing some strange things to your ears. Therefore we want to know what these things mean. For all the Athenians and the foreigners who were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. Then Paul stood in the mid of Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in all things you are very religious. The authorized version says you are very superstitious. For as I was passing through and considering the objects of your worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to the unknown God. Therefore, the one whom you worship without knowing, him I proclaim to you. God who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshipped with men's hands as though he needed anything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. And he has made from one blood every nation of men to dwell on all the face of the earth, and has determined their pre-appointed times and the boundaries of their dwellings, so that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope after him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being, as also some of your own prophets, sorry, your own poets have said, for we also are his offspring. Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Truly, these times of ignorance God overlooked, but now commands all men everywhere to repent, because he has appointed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness by the man whom he has ordained. He has given assurance of this to all by raising him from the dead." And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked what others said, we will hear you again on this matter. So Paul departed from among them. Let's just stop right there. Now it's been my privilege uh, over the years to have visited uh, some of the world's great cities. Uh, Los Angeles. Uh, with its never-ending suburbs. Somebody said that Los Angeles is a city, is a suburb looking for a city. It really is. And of course, Manila, that sprawling metropolis in Southeast Asia. And then Hong Kong, the great business hub of the Far East. Uh, not forgetting, of course, cities like New York and Chicago and Toronto, to name but a few. But it really is only when you get to walk the streets of cities like Rome and Athens or ancient cities like Ephesus or Corinth. It's only then that you really 
begin to realize, because of all of the architecture you look at, that you are walking in thousands of years of history. Athens was once the jewel of the ancient world. Its magnificent temples, its Acropolis, its Parthenon, its amphitheaters, its stadia, its arena, home of the Olympic Games. It was once the, the envy of all the civilized world. And Paul, almost two millenniums ago, visited this city. But he didn't come as a tourist. He came as a missionary evangelist. He came with purpose. And we see that he looked around the city. His normal procedure would be, whatever his city of the Roman Empire would go, the first thing he would usually do is see if there was a synagogue there of Jews. And he would go there and preach to them. Or preach to the Gentiles or anybody, anywhere. In the street corners he would preach. And so he was very well acquainted, no doubt, because he was a very learned man uh, with the history, the long, illustrious history of this great city. Uh, he obviously had read their poets. He was able to quote their own poets to them. And uh, so here he is, and he's walking through the city, and he's, he's looking and admiring the sights that he's seeing, the magnificent architectural buildings that the uh, Greeks built. Uh, he's hearing with his ears Many, many voices, foreign voices, because this is a great cosmopolitan city. People from all over the world came to this city. And so he's listening and he's hearing all of these things. But one thing fascinated him. And that was the fact that they were very, very religious. Very superstitious. And so here is Paul in the midst of this, looking at every street corner and every square and every piazza and every shop window, there would be their gods cast in bronze or in gold and silver or stone. Everywhere he looked, there were gods. No wonder he said, you are a very religious and superstitious people. Apollo, Artemis, Aphrodite, Hermes, Zeus, Eros, Pan, all of them, and many, many more. And so Paul, seeing this pantheon of these gods, wanted to make a connection with these people. He was desperate to make a connection and to preach the gospel to them and to share Christ with them. But how is he going to do that? Because they believe in so many gods. And so he comes upon this plinth with this inscription, uh, to the unknown God. And so the Athenians, not desiring to offend some yet unknown God, made this special plinth. And so Paul latched on to this, and here is his opportunity. And he found it easy at that point to point to this and then to use this as an illustration of what he's going to preach about. In verse 23, he said, Therefore the one whom you worship without knowing him I proclaim unto you. What do you say to the religious or the superstitious person who doesn't as yet know the true and the living God? What do you say to those who believe in a greater power but they don't know the God of the Bible? What do you say to the, the philosopher or the thinker or the seeker of truth 
that hasn't yet encountered the God of heaven. What do you say to that? That's the position that Paul was in, in this great city. Surrounded by philosophers and thinkers, they were noted for that the Greeks were noted for their philosophy. It was a cradle of philosophy. What do you say to those people who hasn't got a clue about the one true and living God? Well, here in essence is what Paul said to them and what we can say in this generation. First of all, in verse 24, that God is the source of of man's life. It says, God who made the world and everything in it, since he is the Lord of heaven and of earth. God is the source of man's life. Billions upon billions of dollars are spent every year on the quest to find the origin of life. It is the holy grail of science today. And this argument perhaps for many, seems to be, if only we can find the origin of life, maybe we can find the reason for life. The how and the why of life has been a troubling question to every generation since time immemorial. It's always been the questions that has been asked, the deep, profound questions of the how and the why of life. Now, our generation, I think, especially at this time that we live in, divides those two questions into two camps. The religious camp and the scientific camp. And it is constantly stated that it is the religious camp that answers to the why question of life. And it's the scientific camp that answers to the how question of life and that they don't meet anywhere in the middle. They are totally opposed one to the other. Well, that's not exactly so. And it wasn't always like that. In fact, most of the greatest scientists that ever lived, while they were trying to find the how of life, how things work, what makes this world tick, while they were trying to do that, they already had settled the question of the why of life because they believed in God. Or at the very least, they believed in a creator. Even if they had a belief in a personal God that you could relate to personally, at least they believed in a creator God. So the why question really wasn't bothering them. They were trying to find the how question, but they believed the why. Think of men like Nicholas Copernicus, the great Polish astronomer. Or Kelper, the brilliant mathematician and also a great astronomer, Galileo. I mean, these three men in their generations, uh, they excelled in their sciences. I mean, these are men that turned the world of astronomy upside down. These were brilliant minds, and all of them believed in God. So today we're being told that scientists and astronomers and all this, they don't believe in God. It's, like, it's fairy tales and who with any sense could believe that stuff? Well, these were the most brilliant men of their day and they believed in God. They believed in the Creator. They believed this world is brought about by God. You think of men like Lord Kelvin, Michael Faraday, Robert Boyle, Blaise Pascal. These also in their generation were great scientists. 
wonderful, brilliant minds. All of them believed in God. Michael Faraday loved God with all of his heart. Michael Faraday was a great Christian. He was a man who had a close, intimate, personal relationship with God and wasn't afraid to advertise that everywhere he went. In fact, his, for a few years back, his name was on our, or his photograph was on our five-pound note and the bag of it when you looked at it. Isaac Newton, of course, one of the greatest that ever lived. Here's what he said. He said, The most beautiful system of the sun and the planets and the comets could only proceed from the counsel and dominion of an intelligent and powerful being. They believed in something outside of themselves. They looked at the world around them and said, Someone, some being, others were more direct and says, God created all of this. He is the source of all life. Superstition has looked to nature as a source. Mythology has its deities, its life givers. Religions with their many gods who supposedly create it and sustains life. Science with its matter-of-fact belief in evolution. Cosmologists with their big bang theories. Even astronomers say that we're made of stardust. Stardust, uh, Professor Cox, that uh, handsome, smiling, young, brilliant professor comes on TV and he tells you you're just stardust. That's all you are. Some people like the idea of just being stardust. What does that mean exactly? You're just stardust and you'll just one day disappear and that will be the end of you. Well, thank God the Bible doesn't teach that. That would be a miserable life that, wouldn't it? Others believe that this world, life came to this world when a, when a giant comet collided with the earth and seeded the earth with life. What a lot of baloney that is. Genesis 1.27 says about God that we bear His image, that we are made in His likeness. Psalm 8 says that we are fearfully and we are wonderfully made. <laughs> God is the source of of man's life. But God is also the sustainer of man's life. Verse 25 says, Since he gives to all life breath and all things. God is the sustainer of life. The late old Dr. Wally Criswell, great old American Baptist preacher, he said that God clothes himself in the marvelous creation around us. A man is terrified at the mere appearance of an angel. Anytime an angel appears, it is with the assuring words, fear not, do not be afraid. How much more of God were to appear? With one hand he fashions a golden ring 670,000 miles in diameter to swing around Saturn. And with the other he fashions the point of a claw on the foot of a microscopic insect. That is God. One day placing in the universe a blazing sun 93 million miles away and the next day painting the face of a little flower with the colors of his rainbow and dropping into its chaliced heart a little bit of perfume in order that it might attract an insect to fertilize an ovule. That is God. His hands of master workmanship are everywhere and he clothes himself in this marvelous creation. Can I add a sentence to that that's even greater? God clothed himself with humanity. 
God clothed himself with flesh and blood. The word was made flesh and came and dwelt amongst us. Think of the law of physics. See, God is the sustainer of life. And God has put these laws in this world for our benefit. The one such law says that anything that's heated expands and anything that cools contracts. Now let me show you how that works out in everyday life. It's all to do with molecules, by the way. Warm, thick air is full of molecules all jostling together and that causes friction, that causes heat. Cold, thin air, where there's fewer molecules and they're farther apart, they're not colliding with each other, means there's no friction, so there's less heat. That's why when your hands is cold, you rub them together, you're just rubbing molecules together there just to heat yourself up. Now I know that some of you, and I'm not going to look at anybody, I'm going to look at the back wall. Some of you like your electric blanket and your hot water bottle. You, John, you like it? Okay. John owned up there. It takes a big man to own up. He likes electric blanket, doesn't it? Eh? And so you switch your blanket on for an hour. So winter's night, you get into bed, and it's just roasting hot. Isn't that right, Rachel? <laughs> see, I see that on Facebook. That's why I can say that. So it's open to the public, isn't it? It's out there in the ether. The whole world knows Rachel loves her electric blanket, so I can say it public. Yes. Yes, and absolutely. So what happens? You get into bed. It's hot, hot. What do you do? You stretch out, don't you? You stretch out. If it's too hot, you stretch out to cool down, don't you? But you get into bed in the winter's night and you forgot to put your blanket on. And you have no hot water bottle. And it's absolutely freezing. What do you do? You contract. You curl up, don't you? You contract. So when things heat up, they expand. When they cool down, they contract. Uh, that, that's whether that's steel or whether that's stone or any kind of metal or any kind of liquid. If it heats up, it expands. If it cools down, it contracts. Water. When water cools down, it contracts and contracts and contracts until it reaches freezing point and suddenly and inexplicably, instantly, it starts to expand. <laughs> and we don't know why. Why does it do that? It's a good job that it does do that because the seas at the both poles, if it didn't do that, would be solid ice. But instantly it starts to expand and the top layer of the sea floats. The ice floats to the top, doesn't it? And it's just thick enough for the sun to melt when the summer comes. If it was ice all the way down to the bottom, then everything in the sea would die. But it doesn't because of the intervention of God. Because God made this world to sustain us. He's the sustainer of life. And it's a very delicately balanced world that we live in. We know that, don't we? And it's sustained by God. These are just some of the laws of physics. How many elements do you suppose make up this whole world? Thousands? Millions? Billions? Trillions? 103, actually. Just 103, not many. Everything in this world is made up of a combination of only 103 elements. 
Everything. Salt is two things. Metallic substance called sodium, a gas called chlorine. Just two things. Water is two things. Hydrogen and oxygen. Two parts hydrogen, one part oxygen. Air has just three things. Oxygen, nitrogen, and argon. That's all it is. A few E-trace elements or something, but that's basically just three things. 78 parts nitrogen, 21 parts oxygen, one part argon. A few traces of stuff, hardly even can find it. Just three things, basically. So the entire world consists of just 103 elements plus the intelligent mind of an intervening God. Aren't you glad for that? Because God is not just the source of man's life. He is the sustainer of man's life. But verse 27, Paul tells us something else. That God is the search of man's life. So that they should seek the Lord in the hope that they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each of us. So there's a, a searching, a seeking, a groping. Ecclesiastes 3 and 11, God has put eternity in our hearts. And because eternity is in the heart of every man, every man will seek something outside of himself. Now, of course, atheists deny this. They say they're not interested in anything outside of themselves, really. But that's a very false thing. Now listen, the world of showbiz is very egocentric, very fragile, it's very false. Stars can be a miserable lot many times. Madonna, the material girl, found out that material life in and of itself doesn't really satisfy anybody. So what does she do? She goes out and finds Kabbalah. Kabbalah is an offshoot of Judaism. And it's weird. But that suits her fine because she's weird. <laughs> Sorry to be so blunt about that. But she's doing that for a reason. And the reason is to find some kind of spiritual dimension to her material life. Because the material life alone will never ever satisfy a human being. We're not made for just a material life. And so how many of the so-called stars that you have heard about, how many of them have actually looked for a spiritual dimension, whether it's Kabbalah or Scientology, Zen Buddhism or Hinduism or whatever it may be, all the isms in the world, they're searching and looking for something, another dimension, because all the stuff they surround themselves in and of itself does not satisfy the heart of man. That's the way God made us. So Paul told the Athenians very bluntly that they were groping for God. Trying to find God. And this unknown God that they didn't want to insult, that they didn't know him, Paul says, let me introduce you to this unknown God. The one that you're really, really searching for, that you don't really know you're searching for, but you are. You're groping for this true and the living God because God has put a vacuum shape 
in every man's life that has to be filled, a God-shaped vacuum that has to be filled. And if it's not filled with God, we're going to fill it with something else. Encyclopedia of Religion and Ethics runs into 13 large volumes. <laughs> so there's plenty of stuff to fill that God-shaped vacuum in our lives. If it's not God, we'll fill it with something else. Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 3 and 4, If our gospel is hidden, it is hidden to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this world has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And so Paul was not going to hide the truth from these Athenians. He was going to share that God was the source of their life and God would be the sustainer of their life because God is the search of their life. And then he says that God is the secret of man's life. Look at verse 28. God is the secret of man's life. For in him we live and we move and we have our being. As also some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. <laughs> Therefore, since we are the offspring of God, we ought not to think the divine natures like gold or silver or stone, something shaped by art and man's devising. Here's what Romans 11.36 says, For of him and through him and to him are all things to whom be glory forever. Amen. The Christian can say, my life is hid with God in Christ. And when you get to that place in your life where you know the why of life, the purpose of living, the reason why you're here, and you understand that, then you have found the true meaning of life. And you can find that in Christ. In fact, you can only find that in Christ. In Him, we live and we move and we have our being. So Paul is saying, if we owe our existence to God, then we owe our allegiance to God. You see, this is the problem that the atheist has got today. To admit there is God to admit that God made us, to own our existence to Him, then the obvious question is, well, why don't you own your allegiance to Him? If He made you and created you, and there's a purpose in that, find that purpose and live for it. But rather than live for God, they'll deny there is a God. Because to admit there's a God, and to admit that God is the Creator, He made us, and he made us for a purpose, then the obvious question is, why don't you find that purpose? Why don't you live for that purpose? So rather than do that, then they're in denial. And so Paul says, in him we live. He is the fountainhead. Everything flows from him and to him. We live by him. Galatians 2.20 For I am crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives within me. And the life that I now live in the flesh, this spiritual life that I now live in the flesh, he said, 
This is something that Christ has actually given me. The life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. God has given us the faith to believe in him. There's nobody on the face of the earth that hasn't got the faith to believe in God. They choose not to. But God has made that faith available for us to believe him. And so, faith is an important ingredient in finding Christ. He gives us faith to see by. Bible says, why we look not at the things that are seen, but the things that are not seen. The things that are seen are temporal. The things that are not seen are eternal. So he gives us faith to see by. He gives us faith to walk by. For we walk by faith and not by sight. He gives us faith to live by. The just shall live by faith. He gives us faith to please Him. Without faith, it is impossible to please Him. He gives us faith to receive from Him. James chapter 1 tells us that we can believe Him, not doubting Him, and receive from Him. By faith, he says. All of that faith God gives to us that we may believe in Him. See, God is the secret of man's life. And not only that, we live through him. 1 John 4, 9, God sent his only begotten son into the world that we might live through him. The Bible says that once we were in darkness, once we were dead in trespasses and sins, but the Lord gave us life and now we are light and we are life in him. He has changed us. He's given us a reason for living. He says, I am the vine, you're the branches. I'm the head. You're the body. All of these things show us a connection with the true living God. And not only that, but we live for Him. Jesus gives us the example, doesn't He? Jesus said, I do always those things that please Him. We live for Him. Our life is centered living for Christ. And so... One day, we'll not just be living for Him and through Him and by Him and in Him, but we'll be living with Him. Glory to God. If you read the last two chapters of the Bible, you'll see where you're going to live with Him. And it's wonderful. And that's the great hope of the believer. That the end of this life, it's not just going to end and that's it. That you'll go back to dust and be no more. The fact of it is we're going to live with him forever in eternity. That is the promise of God. And so he is the sustainer of life. He's the secret of life. He's everything that we need, everything that we desire, we're going to find in him. And so the apostle Paul, walking through Athens, takes this opportunity to speak to these pagan people who believed in many, many gods, who did not know the true God. And he takes his opportunity and he shares with them about Christ. Did you notice he shares with them about the resurrection too? And he preaches them Christ and the resurrection. What is the result of that? Well, the result of that in verse 32. And when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked, while others said, we will hear you again on this matter. And do you know whenever you start sharing Christ with people, that's generally the kind of reception you'll get. Some will mock 
Some will laugh at it and say it's fairy stories, it's fables, it's nonsense. You couldn't possibly believe that. Others will think. They'll say, well, hear you again on this matter. We need time to process what you have said. And those are the people that you pray for. And you ask the Holy Spirit to give them light and to lighten their darkness and let them see Christ is the one. And so the great apostle Paul in this great city, and if you read on there, you'll see that however some men joined him and believed, just a few, including a woman and others with them. Just a few, not many. <laughs> not many out of that great city, but just a few. But he was quite happy that he reached just a few. He was quite happy that some of them listened and some of them responded and some of them became followers of Christ. And that's the work of evangelists, isn't it? That's the work of a man who goes out into the streets and tries to reach people for Christ. And so where are you today? Where am I today? Where are we today? Do we truly believe that God is the source of our life? Do we truly believe that we live in Him and by Him and through Him and for Him and all those? Do we really truly believe that? Because if we do, then He will be and He is the very center of our lives. Just the way the sun is at the very center and that the planets revolve around it. So Christ is the center of our lives and everything we are and everything we have and everything we do revolves around Him and we keep Him as our focus. And if we do that, then our Christian lives will be very successful indeed and we'll know Christ even better than we've ever known Him before. So let's pray. Lord, we pray that you'll help us to keep you at the center of our lives. The main focus, the main thing. That everything else in this life will revolve around you. And Lord, we'll not become distracted, as Martin spoke about last Sunday night. We'll not become sidetracked or lose our focus on Christ. But he will be the main event. So we thank you, Lord, that you are our source and our sustainer. Thank you, Lord, that we searched and we found you. Your Holy Spirit drew us to you, and we thank you for that. We're eternally grateful that we now know Christ as our Savior, the one who died for us and bled upon a cross for us. Thank you for the life that you gave us through your Son, the Lord Jesus. Thank you for the death that he died to give us life. We bless you for that. So Lord, as we take these moments together and as we're about to receive these emblems from this table, let our focus be centered upon you, the life giver, the light bringer, the one who changed us forever. We thank you, Lord. So, Lord, we're humbled this morning. 
with nothing to boast in except you. It's nothing we have done, nothing we could have done. We could not have earned it, did not deserve it. And yet in your mercy you saved us. So Lord, that humbles us. And it helps us to put you first in everything. And so we give you thanks. We praise you for who you are. In Jesus' name. Ken's going to come.